Chapter 6, Ground Shift A week after my family's devastation, my audition for Boston Arts Academy came around. I finally told Mommy about my plans to apply. Wow, that's wonderful, she said. As always, she was excited for me. She often called me her Ormiguita de Boulevard, which means little aunt of the boulevard. I was always on the move, searching for fulfillment and ready and open to opportunity. But then, when I was about to give her details of my audition, the phone rang. It was about my brother, and my excitement took a back burner. As hopeful as I felt about the audition, her heart was still heavy from the recent blow. So was mine. In a way, the sting of the setback made me more certain about what I needed to do. I had to build a life for myself, one not dependent on my parents' circumstance. For me, this was more than a tryout. It was potentially my big break. I felt if I attended any other public school, I'd fall through the cracks, or I'd crack out. On the morning of the audition, I rose early, showered, and put on my favorite sundress. At mommy's urging, I had oatmeal. Made my way to the tea and at least last reached the campus. Wow, it's right across from the Fenway Park, I thought. How cool is that? The building wasn't much to look at, but many Boston's public schools weren't. The school actually shared the building with Fenway High School, a media technology charter school. Whatever, just by being there, I felt like I was taking control of my future. I made my way across campus while eyeing out some of the other kids who seemed to be there for the audition. Crap, there's more? I've always had the tendency to think that I'm the only one doing things. Ha. Must be all the years pretending I was Kelly Kapowski from Saved by the Bell. Anyway, minutes later, I wandered through the doors of the music department. A perky, perky blonde woman greeted me. It was like I'd seen a ghost. I see white people. All the sixth sense and crap. I mean, of course I'd seen white folk, but at my old school, they hadn't seemed all that perky and excited to be there. Most of the teachers were old and smoked too many cigs. It was like, insert thick Boston accent, Jack, sit down for the last time, and you're going to the principal's office. Or, do not throw projectiles across the room. They were pissed and couldn't handle the street kids like us. We ran amok. You must be Diane, said the blonde lady. That's right, I answered timidly. Come on in, she said. I'm an assistant here in the music department. She led me up a flight of stairs and into a back room. There, a group of about... Ten other kids had assembled. A Dominican-looking girl was warming up with some scales. A dude with some short dreads and Dwayne Wade glasses had his eyes glued to the sheet music. Neither of them looked at me. Do you have your music ready? said the assistant. I didn't. Oh, I thought I was supposed to sing a cappella, I said. That's totally fine, she said. Wait here until we call for you, and good luck. My turn came up first. Upon hearing my name, I ran my palm across the bottom half of my dress to be sure it wasn't wrinkled, and then I strode into a nearby music room and took a place in the center of the room. A girl by the name of Alyssa was there. I knew her from camp. Phew. She was always a cooler, older kid and would often take me under her wing. What are you singing for us today? asked Mr. Stewart, the head of the music department. I'll be singing Si Tu Eres Mi Hombre by La India. I'd also do L-O-V-E, an American standard made popular by Frankie Sinatra. Very well, said Mr. Stewart. Let's hear it. My heart was racing, but it was now or never. I could see Alyssa rooting for me. I felt like I was outside of my body, watching my own audition from the audience and saying, Relax, dang it. Breathe. Use your diaphragm. Thank you, Diane, said Mr. Stewart, staying poker face. We'll be in touch. That's it? I blurred out. He laughed. Yes, that's it.
My heart fell into my butt. What just happened? Did I do well? Will I get killed at a ghetto A school? How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Ah, teenage anxiety. Two weeks later, I scurried out to our yard when I spotted the postal worker pulling up to our mailbox. Anything for me today, I asked? She rummaged through several envelopes and lifted out a large manila one. My name, in all capital letters, was on front. I bet this is what you've been waiting on, young lady, she said. Here you go. She gave me the package as well as the rest of the day's mail and sped away. I pried open the envelope's flap, at first gently, then with full force. I slid out a stack of materials. On top lay a typed letter on fancy ivory-colored paper. I turned it over and then back to the front and scanned the first paragraph. My eyes fell on two sentences. We are pleased to offer you enrollment for the fall of 2000. It read, Congratulations and welcome to Boston Arts Academy. I stared at the words, rereading them to be sure my eyes hadn't deceived me. My dyslexia gets better of me sometimes, but dang, chill dog. My hands trembled along the edges of the letter as I dropped the other mail onto the lawn. Enduring a moment that will live forever in my memory, the world for once was perfect. I was in. Attending Boston Arts Academy felt like coming home. For the first time, I fit in. I could be myself. Well, as much as I could without looking stupid, of course. My inner nerd was free as last. No one could call me coconut, white on the inside, brown on the outside, because I attempted to speak, well, participate, and study hard. I still had to be chill around the neighborhood. I'm cool, dog. But in school, I could let down my guard. I'd found my people, artists who, like me, wanted to explore, learn, grow. The only downside was that my crew, Dana, Gabriella, and Sabrina, weren't in class with me. Dana had moved to Florida, Sabrina was at West Roxbury and liked it, and Gabriella was in high school in Drake Plain. She later auditioned at BAA and got into the theater department, which made school extra sweet. Showing up for school was actually fun. I seldom had a day when, once my alarm went off, I groaned, rolled over, and wished I could stay home. Every day brought something exciting. In the cafeteria during lunch, students gave theater or musical presentations. Artists like Spike Lee and Yo-Yo Ma visited campus and offered talks. We took field trips to the Boston Symphony, the Museum of Fine Arts, and the Ballet. I was blown away by the opportunity, the access, the exposure. Simply being in that environment lifted my expectations for what was possible in my life, even with the uncertainty at home. The fall I enrolled, BAA was only in its fourth year of existence. In the classrooms and hallways, you could sense a spirit of innovation, of pioneering. The whole place was like a giant laboratory. Staff members experimented with new academic approaches and pushed us to think outside of the box. We discussed race, ethnicity, and social class systems in, in and outside the U.S. It was a well-rounded program designed to emulate college courses and discussion. This was perfect for the inner-city kid who often felt left out of the political conversation. It created an understanding of our socioeconomic status and the discrepancy and opportunity with our white privileged counterparts in Newton and Wellesley. In music class, I take that a step further by researching the music that complemented what I was learning in my other classes. From day one, I was motivated to give 100% and keep my grades on point. Teachers mentioned college as if they assumed we'd one day enroll. Even now, 94% of BA graduates do. My first semester, I was on the bit of a shy side. I had a couple of good friends and enjoyed hanging with them, but I mostly sat on the sidelines and observed. Spring was a different story. 
That's when I began my journey. I still had a long way to go and still do, but by then I was invested. Our music classes were basically chorus rehearsals. About 40 of us divided into our sections, soprano, me, alto, tenor, and bass. Mr. Stewart chose our songs, which included just about every genre, from classical to jazz to pop, Broadway show tunes, and call-and-response spirituals. The music was powerful. Sometimes you could feel the music spirits all around us. There was something special when a group of people worked toward a common goal, and we worked hard. The entire music score from Carmina Burana, gospels like Joyful Joyful, Idolvice from The Sound of Music, hits from Jesus Christ Superstar, and Rent, in my head, I can still hear them. We would prepare for different events during the year. The two big ones were Winterfest and Springfest. Only upperclassmen had been invited to perform for Winter and Springfest during BAA's initial years, but in 2001, the administrators chose to include freshmen for the first time. At the end of chorus one day that March, Mr. Stewart pulled my classmate Damien and me aside. May I see you two for a second, he asked. Um, okay, I stammered. I had no idea why he'd be calling us out. As you know, he said, Springfest is coming. Both nodded. Well, I'd like to offer you both a special part. It'd be amazing if you'd sing a duet. Damien and I looked at each other. I said nothing, since it's tough to speak when your tongue is glued to your throat. I knew Mr. Stephen, re- Mr. Stewart realized I was completely dedicated, but I was floored that he considered me for such an honor. Okay, I said, letting out a nervous giggle. Are you sure? Me? Really? Look, Diane, he said, chuckling. Do you want it or do you not? Yeah, sure, I said, before he could change his mind. Damien also agreed, and the next week we started, we began staying after school to learn our number, The Last Night of the World, a love song duet from Miss Saigon. I was delighted. This is what I wanted. I was scared. Crap. But God did. God did. I want it. I wanted it bad. At home, things remained unstable. The dust had settled on the realization that mommy and poppy were nowhere close to citizenship. They continued their daily work grind so they could gradually rebuild their savings. Although they finished the courses they'd been taking, they couldn't afford to sign up for others, nor did they have that much desire. At night, behind closed doors, I'd hear them talking through their options. Those discussions ended with arguments. I stopped even asking about their plans. I'd basically given up hope that they reached their goal and hoped that they could remain under the radar until I reached an age when I could help. The one bright spot in our lives was my niece. Back when Gloria moved in with her folks, Mommy was sent back to Columbia and Eric relocated to New Jersey. I saw a lot, of, a lot less of Erica. That changed in early 2001. Not only did Gloria begin bringing her daughter around more, she made it clear that, even with Eric gone, she wanted us to be part of Erica's life. In the evenings, I spread toys across my bed so I could play with her. Hi, sweetie, I'd say, luring her into my room by flashing a Disney coloring book. With a smile, she'd pick up a crayon, only to wander off a second later, and bang on her mini xylophone. With that cutie pie in the house, there was never a dull moment. One afternoon that May, I was entertaining my niece in the living room. Mommy was in the kitchen, visiting with Amelia, Gabby's mom. I overheard the conversation. I had the strangest dream last night, Mommy said. She lifted the lid on a pot, poked her spoon inside, and scooped out some soup to taste. What was it about, her friend asked. I can't remember the whole thing, she said, but at the end of it, I fell into a pond of dead fish. A pond of dead fish, she repeated. Hmm, bueno. 
Amelia was known to be a clairvoyant and often could feel things, supernatural things. She read La Taza, the cup, which could tell you some of your future simply by looking at the swirly remains after the reading was finished. If a utensil fell on the floor, depending on what it was, she could tell you if a man or woman was coming to your house. I would be spooked half the time because our family track work record was so crappy. Bad juju. Sacudela. La, la mala suerte. I was scared by the unknown. I know, my mom said. I woke up in a cold sweat. I don't know what it means. By the way she spoke, I could tell she was freaking out. I have a bad feeling about it, she continued. Maybe some bad luck is coming. Dead fish or any dead dreams out fish were not a good sign. Right then, Poppy, who had been listening from his room, walked in. Are you telling that story again, Maria? He said, chuckling. Apparently, he'd already heard it that morning. You're going to scare Diane, he said. You're being superstitious. I'm sure it's no big deal. Mommy smirked, began slicing some onions, and no one mentioned the dream again. Until two evenings later. On Poppy's way home from the factory last later that week, he stopped at a bodega to pick up a couple of items. As the cash register cashier rang him up, he asked, How about a Powerball ticket, sir? At first, Poppy declined, but then he said, Okay, why not? Might as well give it a shot. He paid the man and tucked the ticket in his pocket and forgot about it. Following dinner, he retired to his room and turned on the news. When an announcer mentioned the live lotto drawing, Poppy remembered his ticket and took it out. Five minutes later, he came charging into the living room. Maria, Chibola, he shouted. Guess what? Mommy and I had been watching novella Betty La Fee, the Colombian version, the first and best version. Back up, all you fake A versions of ugly Betty. We bolted to our feet. What is it? Mommy said. What's wrong? My numbers match, screamed my father, waving the ticket. We won $10,000. Let me see, Mommy said, taking the ticket from my father. Are you sure, honey? Poppy raced back into the room and returned with a piece of paper. On it, he scribbled a row of digits. Look, he exclaimed, handing my mother the evidence. The numbers match. Mommy's eyes darted back and forth between the paper and the ticket. We all got quiet when she examined everything. Oh my god, you're right, she said. finally said, giving my father a huge kiss. I guess my dream didn't mean anything, she hollered. We're lucky after all. For some families, $10,000 wouldn't even cover the cost of a summer vacation. But for us, it was like a million bucks. And literally overnight, my parents went from feeling hopeless to optimistic. We can use this money to pay an illegitimate lawyer, Poppy said, told Mommy the next morning. This is a miracle. That afternoon, Poppy left work early so he could go and claim his prize at the state lottery headquarters. He came home wearing the biggest grin. After so many months of turmoil, it was nice to see him smiling again. On his way out the door that Thursday, Poppy poked his head into my room. I just awakened. Good morning, honey, he said. Hi, Poppy, I answered with a yawn. Everything okay? He nodded. I want you to have this, he told me, and that's when he handed me the brand new $50 bill. I slid from my bed and hugged him. Thanks, Poppy, I said. I love you. Every morning I'd wake up to $3 on the nightstand, but this was way generous. It was still pretty early when my father left, so I decided to squeeze in one more hour of rust. Ninety minutes later, when my eyelids flew open, I glanced at my clock and realized I had overslept. Shoot, I'd be running behind for school. For more than a decade, I relived every detail of what happened during the next 12 hours. My argument with mommy, my rush to get to campus, that eerie feeling in my gut, 
the rehearsal with Damien, the pit stop at Falakir, and the voice on our machine saying no one was home, playing over and over again in my head. On the evening of May 17, 2001, out of breath and full of dread, I unlocked my, our front door, cracked it open, and crept inside. Nothing has been the same since.